Aren't you glad that God's grace and his mercy is so much more than our sin? Glad you're here to worship with us this morning. I pray that you had a blessed Christmas and that your new year's off to a great start. And there's no better way to start the new year than to be in the house of the Lord, worshiping him and praising him. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to Psalm 99. Psalm 99, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 and verse 9. But I'm so glad you're here this morning. And I'm so thankful for those that are watching online. Because what I want to do over these next few weeks is share with you my desire for Red House Baptist Church for 2022. You know, instead of a New Year's resolution, some people choose a word that they, that they want to describe how to approach the new year. Some people may choose the word commitment. Some people may choose the word declutter. That describes me. Some people need to use the word determination or maybe peace or trust or perseverance or, or be more disciplined. And as a family, uh, Joni and I, we challenged each of us to come up with a word and a verse for the new year. And for me, my word is courage based on Joshua 1.9 where God said, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And for Red House Baptist Church, the word that comes to my mind is, is refocus. And this is my desire for Red House. And you may be thinking, what do you mean by refocus? I want us as a church to refocus on the vision statement that God has given us. You see, a few weeks ago, I met with several leaders of our church, and we spent a Saturday going through the vision statement and examining how well we as a church are fulfilling that vision statement and maybe some things that we're not doing that we should be doing to fulfill it. And in case you don't know what our mission statement is, let me remind you. Our mission statement is this, that we to exalt Christ, we to are to equip believers, and we are to extend the kingdom. And over the next three weeks, I want to focus on each part of this vision statement. So this morning, I want to examine what does it mean to exalt Christ and how can we as a church and in our individual lives exalt Christ. And I want to pull from Psalm 99, 1 through 5 and verse 9 where it is a command in Scripture that we exalt Christ. So let's uh, look Psalm one ninety or Psalm 99, verses 1 through 5. It says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awe-inspiring name. He is holy. The mighty king loves justice. You have established fairness. You have administered justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow in worship at his footstool. He is holy. And then verse 9, exalt the Lord our God, bow and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Let me define the word exalt for you. The word exalt, it translates a, a Hebrew word, it's an imperative, it's a command that means lift up. It means to elevate something, it means to glorify something. And so when we glorify God, when we praise God, when we give honor to Him, we exalt Him, we lift Him up. 
You may say, why do we exalt Him? This, this psalm is very clear as why we exalt God. It says that He is great, that He is the mighty King who is over all the nations and before Him who all nations should tremble. We should exalt God because of His name. His name is Yahweh, coming from the Hebrew verb to be, which means that God can be whatever He needs to be to us when He needs to be it. And the psalmist says that His name is awe-inspiring. It also says we need to exalt God because He is holy. He is set apart from all other creation. There is no one like Him. So if Scripture commands us to exalt Christ because of who He is, how do we exalt Him? How do we exalt Christ as a church and in our personal lives? I want to give you five ways this morning that we are to exalt Christ. The first thing I want to share with you is we to exalt Christ him with our worship. We to exalt Christ with our worship. In Scripture, there is one activity that is associated more with glorifying God than anything else, and that is worship. The best definition of worship I've ever heard was at a youth mission trip in 2014 at Ridgecrest, North Carolina. The worship leader described worship as this, and I've never forgotten it. Worship is God's revelation of himself to us and our response to it. Worship is God's revelation of Himself to us and our response to it. You say, what does that mean? Well, when God reveals Himself to us, we are to respond to Him. We are to respond in awe. And that word awe means that we are to have a fear, a reverence, an admiration of God because of who He is and what He has done for us. Because He is holy and there is no one like Him. He is the only one that is worthy of our worship and our praise. Psalm 63, 3 says this, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Scripture makes it very clear that we are to praise God with our mouths and with our lips. And what I want you to understand about worship, it's not a spectator sport. We are not the spectators in worship. We are the participants. We are not the audience. There is an audience of one when it comes to worship, and that audience is God Himself. You say, well, I can't sing. Well, neither can I. But you know what Psalm says? Psalm 101 says, Shout for joy to the Lord, or make a joyful noise unto the Lord. There is no excuse for not using your lips and your mouth to praise God. Scripture says, even if you can't sing, praise Him. And then it goes on to say in Psalm 100, worship Him with gladness. You say, well, I don't like the songs. Are the songs worshipful? Are the songs theological? And this is what I want to say to you. Don't let what you don't like about worship keeping you from worship God. Don't let what you don't like about worship keep you from worshiping God because we have to understand that worship is not about us, but worship is about Him. And there is more than one way to worship God. Psalm 150, it tells us how we are to praise God. Psalm 150 gives this list of instruments that the Israelites were to use to praise God. It tells us why we're to praise God because of His power and His greatness. It tells us where we're to praise God. It says we're to praise Him in all places. 
And then it ends with who is to praise God. It says, let everyone who has breath praise the Lord. Anyone that has breath is to praise the Lord with their lips. So if you are here this morning and you're breathing, which I think you are and I hope you are, Scripture says you are to give praise to God. And there's nothing wrong with clapping. There's nothing wrong with the raising of hands and the tapping of feet. Because like David in 2 Samuel 6, 14, we are to worship the Lord with all our might. It even said that David even danced before the Lord. Now, I'm not going to say we're here to dance or anything like that. But what you need to understand is what that word dance means when it says David danced before the Lord. The Hebrew word used for dance, it means to stamp or to spring about for joy. It means to leap, to jump. It's not talking about wildly dancing like the Israelites did before the golden calf in Exodus 32, 19. And if you don't feel comfortable worshiping in those ways, that's fine. But I encourage you, don't criticize those who do. Because the worst thing we can do is stifle the biblical worship of others. That's the worst thing we can do is stifle the biblical worship of others. We are to worship in our own way. Different cultures worship differently. I've been to different places, and I'm sure you've been too, and the worship that we have here at Red House Baptist Church is different from worship in other churches. I've been to Philadelphia. Their worship is completely different. I spent eight years in California. Their worship is completely different. I've been to Mexico, and some of you have too. Their worship is completely different. We can't put worship in a box because we can't put God in a box. Here's the mark of true worship. The mark of true worship that exalts Christ is not whether it caters to our taste, but whether it points to God and draws others to Him. The mark of true worship is, is worship that exalts Christ and doesn't necessarily cater to our taste, but it points to God and draws others to Him. And by the way, worship is not a concert. Worship is not a performance. Worship is not about the worship leader or the praise band or the pastor. The worship is all about Jesus. And regardless of how we worship, if Jesus is not the object of our worship, why worship? If Jesus is not the object of our worship, why worship? This is exactly what happened to the Israelites. They lost their focus in regards to worshiping God. They were not living for God. They had compromised their faith. They had bought into the, the pagan cultures that had surrounded them, began worshiping other gods. And listen to what God told them in Amos 5, 21 to 27. He says, I hate, I despise your feast. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. I'll have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. House of Israel, was it sacrifices and grain offerings that you presented to me during the 40 years in the wilderness? But you have taken up Succoth your king and Kawan your star god images you have made for yourselves. So I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. Yahweh, the God of hosts, is his name. He has spoken. Then listen to Isaiah 1, 10 to 15. 
Isaiah writes, God speaking, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me, asked the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before, come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. I despise your incense. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They become a burden to me. I'm tired of putting up with them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. God did not mince words when it came to the worship of him. He told the Israelites that your worship is a burden to me. He told them, I can't stand it. He told them your worship is worthless, that you're simply going through the motions, and that because your worship means nothing to you, your worship means nothing to me. And God said, I would rather you not worship me at all. You see, God is serious about our worship of him. It's not something we're to take lightly. And just like God told the Israelites, we cannot live for the world Monday through Saturday and come and worship God on Sunday. I'm going to be blunt. If this is your view of worship, that you can live how you want during the week and then come on Sunday and worship God, then your worship is worthless to God. Your worship is a burden to God. Your worship means nothing to God. You say that's harsh and that's offensive. That might be, but it's biblical and sometimes the Bible offends. When you come to worship on Sunday, it should be a reflection of how you lived your life throughout the week. I pray here this morning, you're here this morning, and God would not say to you what he told the Israelites, that your worship is a burden, that your worship is worthless to him. And I pray that you would recognize the importance of worship and that Jesus is the only one who should be the object of our worship. In Matthew 15, 8, listen to what Jesus told the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jews. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He said, they honor me with their lips. They're religious. They play the part. They look good. But their heart is far from me. You know what God is saying to them and to us? God is saying, I don't want you to play church. I want you to be the church. I'm afraid there are too many Christians in churches today who are playing church instead of being the church. And you may be sitting here this morning and God may be saying the same words to some of you. That what you say on Sunday, what you sing on Sunday, what you portray on Sundays does not match how you live the rest of the week. Or maybe when you come to worship, you're distracted because you have so many other things on your minds that you lose focus of why you're here and the purpose of worship. Maybe you're weighed down about what's going on in your lives. Maybe you're thinking about all that you have to do. Or maybe you're even thinking about what's for lunch. I know my boys used to ask me as soon as I walked in worship, what's for lunch, Dad? They were excited to eat. You know, I pray that we'd be excited about worship as we are so many other things in our lives. You see, if we're going to exalt God in our worship, 
He has to be the focus of our worship. And notice in Psalm 99, 5 and 9, it says how we are to exalt God besides praising Him with our lips. He says, exalt the Lord our God, bow and worship as His footstool. He is holy. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God, bow and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. He said, bow at His footstool, bow at His holy mountain. That means to prostrate, make yourself prostrate before his feet. It's a picture of submission. It's recognizing Jesus for who he is. And when I think of a picture in Scripture of someone who bowed at the feet of Jesus, I think of the wise men in Matthew 2, 9 through 12. Listen to what they did. After hearing the king, being King Herod, they went on their way. There it was the star they had seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Now, contrary to popular opinion, we have no idea how many wise men there were. We know there were at least two because it says wise men, and that's plural. We know they weren't at the manger. We know they came about two years later after the birth of Jesus to the house where Mary and Joseph were staying. But look what happened when they arrived where Jesus was. It says they bowed to and worshipped Jesus. And then they gave him gifts that demonstrated that they knew who Jesus was. They gave him gold demonstrating he was the king of kings. They gave him frankincense demonstrating he was the great high priest. They gave him myrrh demonstrating that he was going to be the ultimate servant who would make the ultimate sacrifice. But notice after they worshiped Jesus, they went another way. They changed course. Don't miss this. When we come to worship, we need to be willing to humbly bow before him, submit our lives to him, give ourselves to him, Open our hearts to Him and be changed by Him. If you worship Jesus, if you exalt Jesus, you can't help but be changed by Him. So this morning, my desire for each of you and for Red House Baptist Church that we would exalt God in our worship. Also, we need to exalt God with our works. We just don't praise God with our lips. We praise Him with our, our worship with our lives. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. Worship is just not something that takes place on Sunday mornings. Worship is something that should take place in our lives every day that we live. Worship is a lifestyle. It's not something you go to. It's something you do. And in our church, in our personal lives, we are to exalt Christ in all we do. You say, how do we exalt Christ in our works as a church? Well, we do it through our worship service. We do it through the music and the message. We do it through prayer. We do it through Sunday school. We do it through giving. We do it through being accepting and loving of each other. We do it in through all the retreats and the conferences we offer. We do it through our youth ministry and our kids' ministry. Everything we do as a church should point to Christ and exalt Him. And if what we do doesn't exalt Christ, if what we do doesn't point others to Christ, we shouldn't do it. You say, you mean there are things churches do that don't, don't point others to Christ? Absolutely there are. 
For some churches, it may be their worship. For some churches, their worship is about the singers, it's about the musicians, it's about the worship leader, the praise band, and their focus is misplaced. For some churches, it might be about the pastor. And some churches are built on the persona of the pastor himself. And if the pastor leaves, the church falls apart. You see, a church should not be built on any program. The church should not be built on any pastor or person. A church should be built only on the person and the work of Jesus Christ himself. You see, for some churches, it may be events. They may have a misplaced focus on events. The church I was at in California, not too long before I came here, we went through a, or we were going through a simplification process, and we actually went through a book called Simple Church. And we had a lot of things going on as a church, but we really wasn't seeing any results. And we were trying to declutter our church calendar and our church events so we could be more effective. And one thing we cut out was our harvest festival. It took a lot of work, it took a lot of energy, it took a lot of people. And I'm not sure we had one single person join our church in all the years I was there as a result of that one single event. Because what we discovered is that the families were not just coming to our church for the Harvest Festival, they were going to the Presbyterian Church and the Lutheran Church and the Christian Church. They were hitting every church in the community throughout the night. And we weren't seeing any lasting results. So we decided not to do it anymore because it wasn't being effective in reaching people with the gospel. We also were looking at making other changes in our worship, in our Sunday school, and in other areas. But this is the conclusion we came to, that anything we did had to support our mission statement. And if anything we did or wanted to do didn't support our mission statement, we didn't do it. And what I've discovered is just because a church is a busy church doesn't mean it's a healthy church. Just because a church is a busy church doesn't mean it's a healthy church. There are a lot of churches that are busy, but there are many churches that are growing and even die. And my desire is for Red House Baptist to grow and to flourish. Yeah, it may mean changing some things. It may mean doing some things a little differently. Like tonight, we're going to do something different with Thrive Worship. As Linda said, it's going to be student-led, but it's for anyone and everyone who wants to come and worship. But we have to get past these ideas. Oh, it's tradition. Oh, we've always done it that way. And I'm not saying tradition is wrong. There is value in tradition, but here's the problem with holding on to tradition. If we hang on to tradition for the sake of tradition, we may lose the church in generations to come. There's nothing wrong with tradition as long as being effective in reaching people with the gospel and pointing others to Christ and exalting Christ. But if we hang on to tradition for the sake of tradition, we may lose the church and generations to come. This also may mean improving what we are doing. You know, we do a lot of things great, but it doesn't mean there's not room for improvement. Maybe there are some ways we can improve our giving or improve upward or improve vacation Bible school or, or Sunday school or discipleship or community outreach. There's always room for improvement as a church in our personal lives. And in the coming weeks, hopefully, we'll be able to share some more about some goals we're going to be setting for us as a church. But here's my prayer for Red House. To focus on what we need to do to exalt Christ. 
That's my desire for Red House Baptist Church is to focus on what we need to do to exalt Christ. You say, well, what about worship in our personal lives? Scripture addresses that as well. In Romans 12, 1, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to God and is your reasonable act of worship. Paul makes it very clear that we are to worship God with our lives. And he tells us how. He says we're to be a living sacrifice. Now this phrase, living sacrifice, always has intrigued me because when you think about the phrase living sacrifice, to me it's an oxymoron. Because in Scripture, sacrifice was a picture of death. You had the sacrificial system of the animals in the Old Testament. You had the sacrifice of Jesus in the New Testament. So if sacrifice implies death, how can we be a living sacrifice? Very simple. By dying to ourselves. By dying to our plans, our dreams, our goals, our desires, and living for Jesus. You see, when we die to ourselves and live for Jesus, this is an act of worship. Why? Because we are demonstrating with our lives that Jesus is worthy of our worship and our praise. And notice Paul uses the word reasonable. He says it's your reasonable act of worship. Meaning what God is asking us to do by living for him is not too much. It's not radical. It's not unfair. It's completely fair. You see, when you think about what God has done for us, living for him is the least we can do. And I know as a parent, I've asked my boys to do something, and sometimes their response is, now? Like, really? You want me to go do that now? Like, yeah, I just asked you to, didn't I? Yeah, now. Or maybe their response is, that's not fair. You didn't ask him to do anything. Hear that? But you know what my response is? What I'm asked to do is reasonable, because guess what? You have a roof over your head, you have food in the refrigerator, and you have clothes on your back. If you want me to take that away, then don't do what I ask you to do, and you'll be getting paid the bills. It's not unfair when God asks us to, to live our lives as a living sacrifice to Him. All He asks us to do is live for Him in light of what He's done for us. There's nothing unfair about it. And we have to see every day. We have to see every circumstance. We have to see every situation as an opportunity to exalt Christ, to draw attention to Him and to lift Him up. And here's the bottom line. In our church, in our personal lives, we are to exalt Christ and give Him the glory and the honor and the praise that He is due, not just on Sundays, but every day that we live. And if what we do does not exalt Christ, we shouldn't do it. The third point I want to make is we are to exalt Him with our words. You see, it's just not about the works we do, but the words we say are to exalt Christ. Again, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. That includes the words that we speak. And in Matthew 12.34, Jesus said this, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And if our heart is right with God, if we've been changed by God, the words we speak will bring glory to God. Luke was probably three years old and we were in California and we were sitting at the dinner table and Luke said to Joni, that's stupid as only a three-year-old could. 
Johnny looked at him and pointed his finger at him and said, don't you ever say those words inside this house again. Without missing a beat, Luke turned and looked at her and said, what about outside, Mommy? Johnny and I looked at each other and we wanted to punish him so bad, but we couldn't stop laughing. For a three-year-old to not miss a beat and say, you know what, you said not inside the house, but guess what, Mom, you didn't say outside the house. I guess I can say that outside the house. That's not what was meant. You see, location is not the issue. The heart is the issue. And whether we're at church or at work or at home or at a ball game or at a store, how we speak and act should be the same. There should be no difference in our speech just because we're in a different location. And do you realize that the tongue is the most powerful muscle in our body? Because there is no other muscle in our body that can do what the tongue is capable of. The tongue has the power to heal and it has the power to hurt. The tongue has the power to build up or the power to destroy. And in James 3.8.9, James said the tongue can't be tamed. That it's full of poison. And he goes on to say, we praise God with it and then turn around and we curse others with it who have been made in the image of God. You see, people are hurt by the words of others. People can be hurt by our words even in churches. You see, a church should be a place of security. A church should be a place of safety and a place of rescue and a place for those that are hurting. It should be a place for healing. But how often do churches turn into places where members of a church turn on each other and people are hurt? We've got to be careful with our words. Does that mean the church is going to be perfect? No. The church is not going to be perfect. Why? Because we're all sinners. We're imperfect people. We're going to make mistakes. But a church should be a place where someone can come and feel welcome and accepted and loved and not be hurt. You see, we must realize the words we use will leave a lasting impact on others. And we must be careful with our words because once we say something, it can't be forgotten. It can only be forgiven. Once you say something that you wish you wouldn't have said. There's no taking it back. It won't be forgotten. The only thing that can happen is it can be forgiven. That's why it's so important for us to think before we speak. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Every word we say begins with a thought. And before we speak, we need to allow Christ through the Holy Spirit to filter our words. This goes for text. This goes for emails. This goes for social media posts. This goes for voicemails. All these things where we use words, we need to be careful about what we say before we say it because there's no taking it back. You say, well, I deleted my social media post. No, you thought you deleted it. Somebody took a picture of it. How many people have lost their jobs or gotten in trouble for social media posts they posted years ago? Or they thought it was no longer available? We have to be careful with our words. We have to make sure that our words exalt Christ and lift up the name of Jesus because the words we use can either turn someone away from Christ or turn someone to Christ. 
That's why Ephesians 4.29 is so important when Paul said, Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up the one in need and bringing grace to those who listen. I want to encourage you to make sure that the words you use demonstrate the grace of God and bring glory to God and point others to God. The fourth thing quickly I want to say is we are to exalt Him in our wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge of what is true or right coupled without, coupled, I'm sorry, with judgment as to action. Coupled with judgment as to action. It's knowing what is right, what is true, coupled with judgment as to action. It's applying what we know. And the decisions we make, the choices we make as a church in our personal lives should not be made apart from the wisdom of God. And everything we do as a church, and everything we do in our personal lives, we should seek God's guidance through prayer and through the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And just like every word we say begins with a thought, every decision we make begins with a thought. And usually we don't make a decision without thinking about it first, or at least we shouldn't. And before we make a decision as we live for Christ, every thought we have should be submitted to Him. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.5 and if we use Christ as our thought filter the decisions we make are going to bring glory and honor to him and if we truly fear the Lord if you truly fear the Lord we will seek his wisdom and we will follow him look what uh, Proverbs 16.16 16 says how much better to get wisdom than gold to get understanding is to be chosen rather than than silver. Nothing in this world, nothing this world offers can compare to the wisdom that God offers us. Nothing in this world can compare to the wisdom that we receive from God. And may we never be guilty of ignoring God's wisdom and following our own. Last thing I want to share is we are to exalt Him in our worries. You say, I thought worry was a sin. You're right. Because worry shows doubt. It shows a lack of trust in God. But in this context, I'm referring to our trials, to our concerns, to our difficulties, which are synonyms for the word worries. And when we face trials or have concerns, it is an opportunity to exalt Christ. And if you want your life to bring glory and honor to God, you must be prepared to face trials. Because when God allows trials to enter our lives, he may be getting ready to work for His honor and glory. When you look throughout Scripture, I think of Job who went through some great trials, some incredible trials where God took everything away from him. But God did it for a reason. And then at the end of the book of Job, you see how God blessed him with so much more than he had in the beginning. I think of Daniel in the lion's den who was thrown in the lion's den because he refused to stop praying to God. And after he got out of the lion's den, he was promoted to the third highest leadership in the kingdom of Babylon. I think of Paul and all that he went through and all that he suffered. Why? To exalt the name of Jesus and let the name of Jesus be known. There were many times Paul could have quit and give up, but he refused to because he realized exalting Christ and sharing the gospel was so much more important than the trials and the suffering that he was going through. 
And I think in my own life, oh, God has used trials to bring glory and honor to Him and do things I had no idea He was going to do. At my grandfather's funeral back in 2002, I was asked to speak, and as I shared about my grandfather, I shared the gospel. And sometime later, my uncle shared with me that because I shared the gospel at my grandfather's funeral, he gave his life to Christ. God used that difficult time in my life to bring my uncle to Christ. And if I would not have taken that opportunity that I had to share the gospel, who knows if my uncle would have ever come to know Christ. And about four years later, he died of colon cancer. But now I know where he is because he told me that he had received Christ. And his whole family, as far as I know, is, is now saved. You see, that's something only God can do. That's something that through the circumstance that I was facing, I had no idea how God was going to use it to bring glory and honor to his name, but he did. And even if we can't see how God is using our trials for his glory, we can be confident that God is working for his glory. And trials make it clear to the world that we're not in control. Trials make it clear to the world that God is in control. As others see that we don't have the ability or the strength to overcome the problems we face, but God does. And when God works, he gets all the glory. He is exalted and not us. And trials show that God is dependable and that God is faithful because when we go through trials, people are watching. Do you realize when you go through a trial, people are watching you to see how you're going to respond, especially if they know that you're a believer? They're watching to see, are you going to get angry with God and blame God? Or are you going to respond in faith and with joy and have peace? And when we respond with joy and have peace and in faith, that's not normal for the world. That's abnormal because it doesn't make sense to them. And we have to see our trials as an opportunity to talk about the hope and the life that we have in Jesus. But if we grumble and complain and blame God, we're going to lose the opportunity to speak of the greatness of God. And I believe that God brings trials into our lives so we can be a light in the world and so his name can be lifted up and exalted. Now, this doesn't mean that we ignore the hurt. Loss hurts. Life hurts sometimes. And it hurts a lot. But when we show joy that is unspeakable and we show joy that is unshakable and we show we have, have a faith in God that does not waver, it shows the world that Jesus is better than anything else that the world can offer them. Hebrew, or Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. Listen to this verse. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. Habakkuk said, even though everything is gone, even though I have nothing left, I do have this left. I rejoice in the Lord and I take joy in the God of my salvation because He is my strength. I pray this morning that we'll understand that 
as believers, there is opportunity in every difficulty that God gives us. God gives us to be a testimony to a world that is lost, a world that is in darkness, a world that needs Him. And sometimes He uses the things that we go through to show the world that He is real and that He is God. Let's not waste these opportunities called worries or trials that God gives us, but make the most of them by exalting Him and making His name known and pointing others to Him. You see, to exalt God, to glorify God, it requires commitment, total commitment to Him. It means we honor Him with our worship. It means we honor Him with our works. It means we honor Him with our words. It means we honor Him with our wisdom. And we even honor Him in our worries. And we have a great example to follow, and that example is Jesus. Because when we look at the life of Jesus, He always glorified His Father. There was never a moment in the life of Jesus when he did not exalt the Father and bring glory and honor to him. Every thought, every word, every action that Jesus had and did was totally devoted to the glory of God. And if we are to follow the example of Jesus, which we are, because 1 John 2.6 says, Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So if we're to follow the example of Jesus, then there should never be a moment in our lives and in the life of our church when we do not glorify and exalt God. Maybe you're here this morning or listening online and you haven't given your life to Jesus. I want to encourage you to make this decision today so your life can have value, so your life can have meaning, so your life can have purpose, so you can bring glory to God with your life because apart from God, you can't bring glory to Him. Or maybe you've given your life to Jesus. I ask you this morning, are you exalting God with your worship? Are you exalting God with your works? Are you exalting God with your words? Are you exalting God in your wisdom? And are you exalting God in your worries? And everything you do, are you doing it for the glory of God and lifting up the name of Jesus? And I would venture to say that every believer here in this room or listening online is falling short in one of more of these areas I talked about this morning. You say, how do you know that? Because you're not Jesus and neither am I. So I promise you there's at least one of these areas I've talked about this morning that you are falling short and I am falling short. So I want to challenge you this morning to, to maybe come to the altar and commit 2022 to refocus in those areas that God has shown you where you're lacking. And if you're not able to come to the altar this morning, pray where you are. Ask God to show you where you're lacking and exalting Him in your life. And commit to God to make the changes that need to be met so you can exalt Him and lift Him up. And I also want to challenge you not only come and pray for yourself, but also pray for our church. Pray that we as a church would refocus in 2022. And that we would follow God's leadership in fulfilling our mission statement and fulfilling our vision statement, specifically in the area of exalting Christ. Let's pray. Father, I just come before you this morning and just thank you for this time of worship. Father, thank you for your, the worship we've had through the songs we've sung. 
through the message that, Lord, you've given. And Father, I pray that each of us would examine our own lives. And Father, if there's an area in which we are falling short in exalting you, God, I pray that we would desire to make that change today and we would desire to refocus in 2022. Father, I also pray for our church in 2022 that we would desire to refocus in what it means to exalt Christ. And Lord, not only show us the changes that need to take place in our personal lives, but show us the changes that need to take place in our church so we can truly lift up the name of Jesus and point others to you. And Father, if there's someone here this morning who has not given their life to you, whether in this sanctuary or listening online, I pray they would recognize the need to give their life to you, for, for you to be their Lord and Savior. Lord, so their life can have that value and that meaning and that purpose, which is to glorify you and honor you. Father, just work in our hearts this morning. And Father, I pray that those that you've laid on their heart to come forward this morning to this altar would do so. Pray for themselves and pray for our church. God, we need you. And God, may we lift up the name of Jesus because he's the only one that's worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. And Father, we just ask that you would work during this time of commitment. And we ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. So as we sing a song of commitment, a song of invitation, I want to invite you to come to this altar if God has laid it on your heart to pray for yourself or to pray for our church. Come as we sing.